0: all right, well today, turn over to Acts 18. We're really hopefully going to get to Acts 19, but we need to kind of finish up Acts 18 before we get to Acts 19 because really what we're starting now is we're getting into the section of Scripture where we're actually going to Paul's third missionary journey. So for the last several weeks, all of This year, anyway, in most of the last half of December and some of November, we talked through Paul's second missionary journey. Okay, so remember in Acts chapter 13, we started with Paul's first missionary journey where the church of Antioch sent out him and Barnabas, and they went out, and they took the gospels to the Gentiles. That's where they took the gospel. And so then they come back to the church of Antioch, and they stay there for a while, and they get refreshed. They kind of have a furlough, just like our missionaries do. And then they're called out again. But, of course, we talked about this. Barnabas and Paul separate. They have a disagreement, and they really never come back together. And they go minister in opposite, separate directions. And so on that second missionary journey, what we talked so much about, Paul took with him some guys different from Barnabas. So he took with him Timothy, and he took with him Silas, and also we know Luke went with him because Luke is recording this in the book of Acts. And of course, on that journey, Paul thought he was going one direction, but God called him somewhere else, and we're thankful for that call because it took the gospel to Europe. He went to Greece primarily and started there, and guess how we have the gospel? It's because the gospel went to Europe, and then from Europe it came here. So Paul took the gospel to Greece, and we had looked at Paul going to places like Athens and Thessalonica and Corinth. That's what we've been talking about the past few weeks where he was in Corinth, and he stayed in Corinth a good bit of time. And I told you, I think last time we met, that Paul wrote some books while he was in Corinth, some pretty important books in your Bible. The first books that he ever wrote, the first epistles in the Bible, are the book of the first Thessalonians. And he wrote that while he was in Corinth, and we read about that in chapter 18. But he also wrote the book of Romans while he was in Corinth. And so he wrote that during his time there. So that second missionary journey of Paul was really, really, really important. But in Acts 18, he ends that missionary journey and he does the same thing he did on his first missionary journey. He goes back to Antioch. He is sending church, the church that prayed over him and laid hands on him and sent him out full of the Holy Spirit of God. He goes back there and he goes back there because that's his home church, his sending church. And he goes back there to get refreshed and he goes back there to get prayed for and then he goes and gets sent out again. And so now we're about to read about him being sent out again. And so we're about to start reading about the third missionary journey. And so the primary place we're going to read about, and we're going to spend a good bit of time on because it's a very important city, but it's also a very important time for Christianity, is he goes to the city of Ephesus. And so we'll talk about that in just a minute when we get to chapter 19. But I want to look at the end of chapter 18 because it does kind of lead into chapter 19. And there's just something really significant that happens here that you have to understand to understand the first part of chapter 19, when Paul really kind of starts that missionary journey. Okay, so we're going to start reading, uh, just look at verse 24, because this is what the Bible says. It says there, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the Scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria of Egypt. Okay, now let's just stop there for a moment just so you can understand why Alexandria of Egypt is so important. Alexandria was probably, uh, from Roman Empire perspective, probably the second most important. I don't know that it would be prominent, but probably the second most important city in the Roman Empire. Of course, Rome would be the first Alexandria of Egypt, which is a long way away from Rome, by the way, it was probably the most important, second most important, because that was basically the education center of Rome. The largest library in the world, by far, was in Alexandria. So this wasn't the philosophical center. We talked about that like being Athens, okay? So this wasn't philosophic, this was educational, okay? So this is where. People were educated, and Alexandria uh, was just a very prominent city because of that, because the Romans believed in education, and they believed in that, and of course, we even do to this day. That was passed down to us from them, and so we we only can read about the library in Alexandria because when Islam came into Egypt, they burned the library down, and they burned every scroll in the library. But at this time, when we're reading here in the book of Acts, it's very, very, very important. And another prominent thing about Alexandria is it had a large, a very large Jewish population. Probably about 50,000 Jews lived in Alexandria. So this young man that we're reading about named Apollos, he probably came out of that Jewish tradition. Why? Because he knows the scriptures. Okay, at this point, what are the only scriptures we got. Okay, we got the Old Testament. Now, I just told you Paul had written 1 Thessalonians and written the book of Romans, but do you think that has filtered out anywhere yet? No, that was a letter that went to Rome or went to the church of Thessalonica. So he had just written that right before this. So even though we're starting to get some pieces of the New Testament, Apollos didn't have that. All he had was the scriptures, the Old Testament, and he knew them well. But look at what else he knew. He had been taught the way of the Lord. Okay, but it gets him better because this is going to be important. And he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit. The literal Greek word just means he was boiling over, like a pot of water boiling over that's the literal word picture there that's what he was like he had he was just filled with enthusiasm about jesus and he was bowling over but look at what he knew about jesus however he knew only about john's baptism okay so what did apollos know about jesus His view of Jesus was limited, and what was it limited to? The teachings of John the Baptist. Okay, now, does that limit what Apollos knows? Why does that limit what Apollos knows? Yeah, when did did John the Baptist die? Okay, if you've been reading through the New Testament with us, you got to read about that some last week in, was it Matthew 13 and 14, where John the Baptist is beheaded? Okay, so you got to read that. So Jesus still had some portion of his ministry left in the most important portion, the cross and the resurrection. Okay, so did Apollos know the fullness of Jesus Christ? He knew a portion, right? Okay, now this is interesting, though. Now think about John the Baptist. Okay, we know he was kind of the pre-runner or precursor to Jesus. He led the way of Jesus. Okay, But what did he preach? He preached repentance. He preached repentance. Okay, now is repentance important? Yeah, but does repentance save you? No, it's a portion. It's a huge portion of salvation. But is it the only portion of salvation? No, no. Repentance is the beginning, but it doesn't save you. Okay, it doesn't save you. Okay, so John the Baptist had a pretty large following. I mean, what was he doing even before Jesus came on the scene? He was preaching in the wilderness, and what would people do? They would come from the cities to the wilderness to hear him preach, right? Now, probably some of it was like, look at that dude wearing whatever he's wearing and camel skins, and he's eating locusts and honey. I mean, he was probably a little bit different. He was eccentric maybe. But they come to hear him preach, right? And so he was preaching, and what was he preaching about? He's preaching about one's coming... Greater than me, the Messiah is coming. And he even says this in Luke chapter 3, I baptize with water, but what is Jesus going to baptize with? The Messiah, the Spirit of God, and with fire. Now again, what's the book of Acts about? It's about the fire of the Holy Spirit of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the whole book of Acts. So John preached that, But what's the only way you can experience that? What's the only way you can experience the fire, the indwelling, the filling of the Holy Spirit of God? Jesus and salvation. So Apollos only had a portion of the gospel. So now think about this. Okay, John the Baptist is in Israel. That's where he's preaching in the wilderness. Where did Apollos grow up? Alexandria of Egypt. Okay, that's where he's from. How far away is that? Now, it's closer than you think, but it's still a pretty good distance. So what inevitably had to happen, disciples of John the Baptist had to move to Egypt, right? Okay? And what did they do when they moved to Egypt? They were disciples of John the Baptist, so who did they teach about? And what did they teach? What John the Baptist said. So their message was repentance. And do you think they were passionate about it? Well, if you're a disciple of something, aren't you to be like him? That's what we're like as Christians, right? The only thing the word Christian means is just little Christ, little Christ. It was first used in Antioch, that great church that sent out Paul, but it was a derogatory term, and it just means, well, they're a little Christ. Well, yeah, that's what we want to be. We want to be just like Jesus. We want to look just like Him. That's what a disciple does. And so those disciples of John the Baptist looked like Him, preached like Him, taught like Him. And is that not what Apollos is doing? Man, he's preaching with fire. He's preaching with passion. But it's not the fire of the Holy Spirit of God. How do we know? We'll keep reading. Look at verse 26. When Priscilla and Aquila, now remember who these two are, where did we meet them? We met them in Corinth, and what did Paul do with them? He basically lived with them and he worked with them. When he was there by himself before Timothy and Silas came back so that he could just spend his time preaching, He worked with Aquila and Priscilla. They were tent makers. And so Paul lived with them, and he worked with them so he could eat and so he could have money to do everything you need to do to live life. And so what do you think he did for Aquila and Priscilla? Do you think he discipled them? Well, of course he did. I mean, he discipled them, and he shared with them everything about Jesus and everything he knew about Jesus. He was discipling them, teaching them. We don't even know how long they were together, but they're disciples of Jesus through Paul and his teachings. Okay, so remember that. When Persuila and Aquila heard Apollos preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. Okay, so basically what this is telling you is Apollos only had one piece of the puzzle. Okay, now it's an important piece of the puzzle, but he couldn't see the whole picture. So what did Priscilla and Aquila do for him? They explained it all to him. And they revealed the truth of Jesus in whole and not just parts. Okay. This is really important. And I'm telling you, this is really important for Baptists. Okay? Now you can listen to the rain or you can listen to me. Listen to me right now. Because Satan's trying to keep you from hearing this. I'm telling you, this is important. Okay, Apollos was a young preacher on fire, right? And he was eloquent. And people were listening to him preach. So he could have, in a spirit of arrogance, told Aquila and Priscilla, well, I think I know more than you. I mean, I'm a disciple of John the Baptist. You're a disciple of this Paul. I don't even know who he is. I think I'm right and you're wrong. He could have done that. Yeah, he could have hung on to his traditions. Could he not? He could have hung on to what he was taught as a child. But they were revealing truth to him, right? And he listened to the truth. And through the Holy Spirit of God, he received it. And it changed his life. And it changed his life forever. I'll show you how i know in just a minute. But in the church, how many of us are willing to do that? We like our traditions, right? We like it the way it's always been. But does it mean the way it's always been is right? Sometimes even biblical? No, it doesn't mean that. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you need to always be open to truth, right? Because you ain't got it all. I don't care who you are. You ain't got it all because you ain't Jesus, okay? So what do you think discipleship is? It's leading people to truth. Okay, there's a big difference between conversion and discipleship. What does Jesus say in Matthew 28, the Great Commission? Go ye therefore and make converts of all the world. He doesn't say that, does he? He says what? Go ye therefore and make disciples. Okay, why is it not good enough just to have a conversion? Because you don't have the truth. You can have a nugget of truth, but not the whole truth. Discipleship is what we're called to be and to do biblically. Okay, why do you come to church to be discipled? I mean, this is very important. And Apollos was discipled. And that's how Christianity is handed down. Do you see that? Paul handed it down to who? Aquila and Priscilla, and they followed Jesus through that. Then what did they do for Apollos? They handed down what they had learned through Paul about Jesus. And then what's Apollos going to do? Same thing. Same thing. Keep reading. Apollos had been thinking about going to Achaia, and brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go. Now, who's he talking to now? Jews or brothers and sisters in Christ? He's with brothers and sisters in Christ. And why did they encourage him to go? Because he could be of benefit to the church. They wrote to the believers of Achaia asking them to welcome him. When he arrived there, he proved to be great benefit to those who by God's grace had believed. Because what did he do for those new believers? He discipled them, right? He taught them because he had been taught by Aquila and Priscilla, he refuted the Jews with powerful arguments in the public debate. Using the scriptures, he explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah. So he used the Old Testament and he used what he learned from John the Baptist. And then he used what he got from the Apostle Paul through Aquila and Priscilla so that he was preaching the whole truth of the gospel. And did people listen to him and did he disciple people? Yeah, he did. That's how I know. Turn over to 1 Corinthians in your Bible. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3. And we'll just start reading. Look at verse 3. That's a good spot to start reading. Now, before verse 3, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church. Now, remember, where is Paul at this point when Apollos is in Ephesus? He's still in Corinth. We're about, he's about to go to Ephesus, but he's still Corinth. He goes to Antioch, comes back to Corinth, then he's gonna go to Ephesus. So where is Achaia here in Acts 18, where Apollos is sent? It's Corinth. It's kind of like would be maybe a suburb of Corinth, okay, for us in the modern world. Okay. So he's writing now, Paul is writing to the church of Corinthians, and this is what he's saying about. Them, he says, basically, I had to come to you and I couldn't give you meat. I had to feed you with milk. But then look at what he starts saying in verse 3. He says, And you still aren't ready, for you are controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another and quarrel with one another. It doesn't prove that you are controlled by your sinful nature. Aren't you living like the people of the world? When one of you says, I'm a follower of Paul, and the other one says, I'm a follower of Apollos, aren't you acting just like the people of the world? After all, who's Apollos? Who is Paul? We are only God's servants through whom you believed the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts, and then what did Apollos come back and do after it? He watered. So Paul went to Corinth first. Who came in after him? Apollos came in after him. But it was God that made it grow. If you go on and keep reading 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this is where Paul talks, starts talking about our works and he's talking about the judgment seat of Christ and what it's going to be like when we face judgment and everything that we did for our own heart or not for the Lord is going to be burned up like hay, stubble, wood. But whatever we do for the Lord is going to be what? It's going to be refined like gold, precious jewels, and silver. And that's what he says in 1 Corinthians 3. But I wanted you to see about Apollos there. Apollos is a coming behind Paul and he's discipling those that Paul led to Christ. Paul sowed the seed, and Apollos did what? He watered. And so Apollos is really important. And I tell you that because it's going to be important for what we see in Ephesians 19 on the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. So look at verse 1. The Bible says, while Apollos was in Corinth, so we just saw him go there to Achaia, while he is in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast where he found several believers. Okay, now hold that term loosely there for just a second because what you're going to see here is a very similar situation to what we just saw in the life of Apollos. Okay, now just really quickly before we get to continue reading, if Acts 19, let's talk about the city of Ephesus for just a moment, because the city of Ephesus is another prominent city in the Roman world, and it is very similar to Athens, very similar to Corinth, and the thing about Ephesus, the city of Ephesus there on the coast, in in where it is there, kind of in Turkey, modern-day Turkey in that part of the world, is it was a very immoral city. A city filled with idols, a city filled with demons and spiritual oppression. I mean, one way we know that, even if you don't know anything about the history of Ephesus, is what's a pretty prominent part of Paul's letter to the church back to Ephesus in Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 6. What does he talk about there? Well, he talks about the armor of God and putting on the armor of God. And why do you need the armor of God? Because you ain't fighting against what? You're not fighting against flesh and blood. You're fighting against principalities and you're fighting against spirits. Now, why would Paul write that to the church of Ephesus? Because they were in a war. Because it was a spiritually, spiritually dark place. And like some other cities in Athens and Corinth, the most prominent part of this city was a temple, the temple of Artemis. And this was in... That day, one of the seven wonders of the world, a huge temple. Now, Artemis was the moon god or the moon goddess, and she was basically one of the goddesses of fertility. Now, she would have been, in Greek mythology, she would have been the twin sister to Apollo. Now, if you know anything about Apollo, who is Apollo's dad? Zeus. Okay, so who was Artemis' dad? Zeus. And if you follow the flow of Greek mythology, who's at the top of the food chain? Zeus, okay? So Artemis, Apollo, pretty important in the food chain because they're twins, sons and daughters of Zeus. Okay, so she is the moon god. Now think about in Greek mythology, think about just even how people worship today do you think the moon goddess would have been important? I mean, do people worship stars? Do they look at zodiac signs and do all these things in worship? Of course they do. So the moon god, the goddess of fertility, would have been pretty important. So did they build her a temple? Oh boy, did they build her a temple. And you can see what it looked like. You can study that through history, but it was a mighty temple, and it dominated the city, and her worship dominated the city, and we're going to see that probably next week in Acts chapter 19. So this was a very, very, very spiritually dark place, demonic place, a place that had been controlled by Satan for a very long period of time. And Just so you know, I mean, biblically, when you look at Ephesians chapter 6 and when you look at other places in the Bible, the way Satan does things is exactly how we do things today militarily. Okay? We have military bases. We have military outposts in places all over the world, right? Okay, I mean, we have military bases in South Korea. We have military bases in Europe. We have military bases all over the world. So when Satan would take over a territory spiritually, would he set up residence there, camp there? Would he have bases there, outposts there? Yeah, it was a hierarchy. Satan works through a hierarchy. The thing about Satan, is Satan omnipresent? No, he's not God. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. So to be everywhere at once, what does he do? He has demons. He has a structure underneath him, a hierarchical structure that takes land and they don't give it back. And they set up military bases there from a spiritual world perspective. And so I'm telling you, Ephesus was a prominent place that Satan had taken and he wasn't going to give it back without a fight. Okay, so when believers start getting saved in Ephesus, do you think Satan's at work? That's what you're going to see in Acts chapter 19. Do you think he's going to do that here when people start getting saved? Anywhere in the world where people are getting saved, where he has ground and taken territory? I mean, what are we fighting for in a military war or battle? What are you fighting for? You're fighting for land, right? You're trying to take back land that somebody has conquered. Okay, that's the same thing spiritual in the spiritual realm. It's the same thing. And so you're going to see that. And I just want you to understand that as we read Acts chapter 19. So Paul gets to this city of Ephesus. So look at verse 2. He finds 12 believers. We'll see that later, but he finds 12 believers. And this is the first question he asks in verse 2. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, he asked them. Now look at the answer. No, they replied. We haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now how many in the Baptist church can say that? <laughs> A whole bunch of you can say that. Because for so long, we hadn't even talked about the Holy Spirit of God. Because we didn't want to be like them. Or we didn't want to go do something in error. So rather than preaching God's Word, we just left it out of our theology. Right? Right? Well, that's right, you can say whatever you want to. I mean, I grew up in the Baptist church, and I, I mean, I could count on one hand, if even that, probably on one finger, how many sermons I heard about the Holy Spirit of God growing up. I didn't hear any sermons about demons. Didn't hear any sermons about angels. Is that in God's Word? Yeah, it's all through God's Word. Okay, but I wasn't taught what? The whole truth. I was taught portions of it. Just like those followers of John the Baptist. Guess what? You're the same way more than likely. Okay, that's why we preach the Bible, all of the Bible. And don't try to pick and choose what we like and what we don't like and what we don't understand. We just leave it for somebody else. Right? Don't do that. So they hadn't even heard about the Holy Spirit. Why hadn't they heard about the Holy Spirit? Look at verse 3. Then what baptism did you experience, Paul asked? And they replied, the baptism of who? John. So who are these guys in Ephesus now? Are they not just like Apollos? It's the same thing. So somehow, disciples of John had even made their way to Ephesus. And they were teaching and they were preaching, but they were preaching the message of John. So they were pe- preaching the message of repentance, but not the message of Jesus in salvation and then Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is what Paul said. He said, John's baptism called for repentance from sin. But John himself told people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. As soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Paul laid his hands on them and the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied And there were about 12 men in all. 12 men in all. Okay. So this is important. Because what does it say there? It calls them believers earlier, right? Okay, but were they saved believers? Man, this is going to get like... Blurred lines a little bit. Can we have people in the church that have a nugget of truth but don't have the full gospel? And can they think in their mind that they're believers but not truly be saved? Of course. So here's the great question. What's the mark of salvation? What's the way you know that you are truly a believer, a follower of Jesus, that you are saved? I mean, the Bible talks about a mark. It talks about the way. In Ephesians, Paul says this. It's the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, that is God's seal, is the way Paul says it in Ephesians. That is God's seal on you. So without the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you, stamping you, sealing you, marking you, whatever you want to say, can you be saved? No. Okay, so let's talk about, and I don't even like to say it in these terms, but let's talk about the steps of salvation for a moment. Because they they go hand in hand, but they're still, the way we have to look at them and process them in our mind, they're still different things, more or less. Okay, these guys here, in the beginning of Acts chapter 19, and Apollos, the end of Acts 18, did they believe in repentance? Heck yeah, they did. They preached it. Does Jesus talk about repentance in the Bible? It's the first message he preached. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Talking about himself. Okay, that's his first message. So is repentance important in the kingdom of God, in following Christ Jesus? It's paramount. You cannot be saved without it. Okay, Romans ten nine say it all the time. It gives you the definition of salvation. If you confess what? With your mouth. That Jesus is Lord. Okay, that's repentance. Because to make Jesus the Lord of your life, or to confess with your mouth, or to turn to him to be Lord, what have you got to turn from? you got to turn from yourself, your pride, your sin. you got to turn from it, and you got to turn to Jesus. So is that important? Paramount. But is that the way you're saved? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and what else? Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. Okay, so it's both and, right? It's not either or. Okay, so you have to believe it's... Through faith, by grace, through faith that we are saved. Okay, so did these guys at the beginning of Acts 19 have the repentance part down? They had it down. Did they have the faith side down? They didn't know. They didn't even know who the Holy Spirit was. Okay, so... It's possible for you to know things about Jesus. It's possible for you to repent of your sins and not be saved. And you've all heard what Billy Graham used to say about the church. I mean, he used to say, this was back 40, 50 years ago, he used to say 50% of the church is not saved. Talking about those that go to church all the time. And why did he say that? Because there was no evidence of salvation in their life. So again, what's the mark of salvation? What's the evidence of salvation? The seal is the Holy Spirit of God. So what is the evidence? What should be the outflow of your life? Well, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, if you are truly a follower of Jesus Christ, are you going to bear fruit? Jesus talked about that. Even... Gave you a visual illustration of that. What did he do to the tree that wasn't bearing fruit, the fig tree? He cursed that sucker. Okay? What's he going to do on the day of judgment when many come to him and say, Lord, Lord. Now, isn't that one part of salvation? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord, okay? Lord, Lord. Lord. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And what is Jesus going to say to many, the Bible says? Depart Depart from me, I never knew you. Depart from me, I never knew you. Okay. Now, I'm not trying to scare anybody. And I don't want anybody to doubt their salvation because I don't think you have to doubt your salvation. But I want to make sure you're saved. Because the Bible says to do what? Examine yourself. it says it. And I'm telling you, the way you know you're saved is through the Holy Spirit. Okay, so, John, how do I know I'm saved? How do I know I have the Holy Spirit? Well, here's a really good one. For me, it's the conviction of sin. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you can sin without conviction, you got a problem. Okay, you got a problem. I'm just telling you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, when you sin against a holy God who has saved you, who has redeemed you, who has made you holy like His Son Jesus, And when you sin and it doesn't bother you and you're not led to confess that sin and get right with God, there's a problem. So for me, conviction of sin is at the top of the list. And I believe you should be like David in Psalm 51 after he committed some sins with Bathsheba and kept it going by killing her husband and on and on and on, what did he do before God? And he went to God and fell on his face and begged for forgiveness. And he confessed that sin and he got right with God and prayed that God would not take his spirit from him and prayed that he would restore the joy of his salvation, right? Go read Psalm 51 if you want to see it. Conviction of sin is important. And we'll talk more about this next week. But the filling of the Holy Spirit is important. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit is important. Jesus said they will know you by your fruit. You will have fruit if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You just will. And so we're going to see some fruit next week. And I hope it's evident in your life. And I hope it's evident to people who are seeing you walk your faith and live your faith out in front of them. And I hope you're like Priscilla and Aquila telling people the way of the Lord. What is the way of the Lord? Jesus is the what? Way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by Him. That's why you see that all through the book of Acts. The way, the way, the way. So next week, we're going to see how the way changed the city, the city of Ephesus, one of the darkest cities in the world. And don't we pray he'll do the same for us in our city? We should be praying that. So we'll get further next 19, great chapter of the Bible. So let me pray for us.